Two and a Half Admins, episode 136. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Before we get started, your customary Clara plug is FreeBSD or Linux, a choice without OS wars. Yeah, this is just the latest article on our website, and it talks a bit more about making the choice between the two and doing so without turning it into a flame war. <laughs> Impossible. Indeed. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. A huge story that has been rumbling for what feels like years at this point finally seems to be coming to a head, and that is TikTok and the potential banning of TikTok in the US. Yeah, of course, as with all of these types of things, it turns out there's more to the story than just being worried about Chinese influence of TikTok. Digging a little deeper into the uh, Restrict Act, which is a little on the nose for me, The Restricting the Emergence of Security Threats that Risk Information and Communications Technology. I'm sure that's not a backronym. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) They're like, holy crap, check it out. It actually spells restrict, you guys. That's awesome. (laughs) But it turns out that in addition to targeting TikTok, they also want to go after Alipay and WeChat and a bunch of things. And so these restrictions say the bill could have implications not just on social networks, but potentially security tools like virtual private networks that uh, consumers use to encrypt and route traffic, indicating the intention of the bill is to target apps or services that pose a threat to national security. And we all know, if we remember back to the, the Patriot Act and so on, you can make anything sound like it's about national security. I'm just not having this nonsense. At the most obvious level, it's xenophobia. It's easy to get people riled up about concern about communist China, Blah, blah, blah. Well, I love how they add Cuba to the list of countries that are apparently a big problem. Well, you know, communist here, you're right back to the same thing again, the old red scare. But honestly, I I think for a large swath of the people that are pushing this TikTok ban, even the xenophobia is a bit of a red herring. It's a cover story. I hate to say this, but... I think the real issue for a lot of folks is more that most of the political discourse coming out of TikTok tends to be more on the left than on the right. And that's the real, quote, problem, unquote. It really burns my ass seeing all this outrage over the horrible things that TikTok is doing to undermine American democracy and politics and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, we we pretty much just gave Facebook a pass for Cambridge Analytica when it comes right down to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, there was a little bit of outrage, but nobody's like, oh, we have to pass laws to keep Mark Zuckerberg from selling our country out, which <sighs> protected the statement of opinion is exactly what the hell he did. So it just, I, I have trouble taking any of this TikTok ban stuff very seriously at all. It's it's xenophobia and it's faux right-wing outrage, and that's about all it really is. Yeah, my concern is that when we just ignore it, that they'll pass it because everybody's just like, oh, it doesn't matter, it's just TikTok or whatever. But the bill's language includes lots of vague terms such as desktop applications, mobile applications, gaming applications, payment applications, web-based application, and any application software that has more than 1 million users in the U.S., Let me clarify, I am not suggesting that I or anybody else should just quietly ignore this. When I say that I have trouble taking it seriously, I don't mean as in whatever, that'll never go anywhere. I just mean that Mm -hmm. the actual claims being made are very difficult for me to take at face value. Because if I did take those at face value, well, like I said, then I have to ask myself, okay, well, why haven't you done anything about 
any other <laughs> social media network that did things that very demonstrably undermined American democracy. Well, is that not the argument for this ban, or at least for some sort of regulation here, that it shouldn't stop with TikTok? It should potentially start with them, but should be extended to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the others, because they are all harvesting way more data than they should be. And they are all, as you say, a potential threat to democracy. Well, that would be great if what the Restrict Act was is a privacy law, but that's not what it is. You're suggesting that a good fix would be actual detailed privacy laws with teeth in them. And I don't disagree with that. That's, that sounds great. Let's talk about doing that. That's not what the Restrict Act even pretends to do. Right. It's not an American version of the GDPR. It is an American version of the Great Firewall of China. But, you know, at the same time, I'm looking at some of this and I'm thinking of some of the laws we've seen in the UK about controlling what people can get to on the internet and how they don't tend to work, but they also tend to be a whole lot of extra inconvenience and, and problems for businesses. And it just seems to me like this is definitely not the right answer to this problem. Yeah, in the UK, we have this online safety bill that has been doing the rounds for the last few years in various forms under different guises of the Tory government. And it looks like some form of it will eventually get passed. And that is just a terrible, terrible piece of legislation that requires basically anyone operating on the internet to check ages and verify people's identities. And I've read quite a lot of opinion pieces about it that suggest that Perhaps this is the result of lobbying groups from the companies who offer this online verification because they're going to make millions and millions of pounds forcing every company and potentially even small organizations running podcasts and blogs or whatever to implement this age verification stuff. It would be a difficult sell to convince me that those folks weren't lobbying for that, honestly. Whether you can attribute the entire phenomenon to their lobbying is, is another story, of course. But uh, yeah, I'm reminded of tax preparation over here in the United States. Every time somebody tries to reform the, the tax code to make simple tax returns for normal people easier, something that you might actually be able to expect normal folks to get right doing for themselves in just a few minutes, lobbying groups come out of the woodwork to slap that down and they're hired by tax preparation places who don't want their business model to go away. So what is the political motivation here? Is it just China's bad, communism, Red Scare, all of that stuff? I would say the majority of it is Red Scare. And this is arguable. This is my personal opinion. I don't think that the China-specific xenophobia is all false by any means. I think there are a lot of folks who are genuinely xenophobic as hell about anything coming out of China. I don't think that's a good take, but I do acknowledge that there are genuinely China xenophobic people. But I think that the majority of the pushback is it's just the standard garden variety conservative push against anything seen as like left or leftist. And it catches up a lot of people on the center with it. You know, you've you've got leftists and you've got Democrats who don't want to get painted as leftists and you've got conservatives, right? Yeah, I think what other countries have done seems a little more sensible like Canada and France, have just said, no TikTok on government devices. Yeah, same here. If that was the concern, then then that solves that. 
And, you know, it's raised a bunch of questions about here, even about like, well, the city has a TikTok account for, you know, trying to promote tourism or whatever. And it's like, how does that work? Mm -hmm. And we kind of saw the same thing of like, well, nobody considered that when we wrote this very quick legislation says, okay, no, no TikTok and government devices. But this does seem overblown and just the law as written is about a lot more than just TikTok. And I'm just afraid they're going to get away with it under the guise of it's just TikTok. <laughs> Or that is just about TikTok. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Tesla Model 3 hacked in less than two minutes at Pwn to Own contest. Has this got you worried, Jim? I mean, yes, but not specifically as a Tesla owner. I think that this was more interesting because it really exposes the degree to which modern cars are becoming modern computers with everything good and bad that that entails. We had two different hacks that, that came out of this. The same group, their first exploit was a time of check to time of use attack on Tesla's energy management system, which they could use to open the front trunk, aka frunk, or the door of a Model 3 while the car was moving, which is horrible. Please do not think I'm attempting to whitewash that. It is, that, that's bad. You don't want that. That needs to get fixed. In much the same way that the ability to remotely lock up the brakes of Chrysler's many years ago needed to immediately get fixed. What was the brand of car that had the one where it turned out it was running IRC server somewhere? And if you connected to it on port 6667, you could get in and do stuff to the infotainment system? That was Mazda's, wasn't it? I think so. I don't remember. It was a long time ago, but it was just... Yeah, you never know what goes into some of these things. And, you know, the other one I'm picturing is the, uh, I forget his name, the Daniel something, the guy who wrote Curl, gets emails from people all the time because if you go to the About menu in the infotainment system, it'll have all the licenses for the open source software. And Daniel's happens to have his email address in it. And people will email him for tech support with their, like, Jeep Cherokee's infotainment <laughs> system because it happened to use Curl internally to to fetch the... ID3 tags for music or something like that. Oh, the temptation to troll would be so strong. <laughs> He's got a whole website dedicated to it. But it really, like, you know, looking at this as well, especially the second hack, which is, you know, a out of bounds right in the Bluetooth chipset, getting you root access on the infotainment system, and then being able to go from there to other subsystems. And it really seems like maybe there should be a hard partition in the network here between mm -hmm. the infotainment system that needs, you know, I got to be able to plug a random USB stick into it and do this and that, and the part that controls the brakes and the locks and stuff. The energy management exploit was interesting, but the Bluetooth one was the one that really grabbed me because I read that, you know, researchers gained access to the Bluetooth 
that got them onto the infotainment system. And from there, they could laterally pivot to other subsystems in the car. And I'm thinking, okay, what new car can you go out and buy right now that does not have Bluetooth baked right in? And do I really believe that Tesla is the only manufacturer that doesn't have an impenetrable firewall between the infotainment system and every other system in the car? I don't know for certain, but no, I do not believe that. I have a sneaking suspicion you're going to find all kinds of infotainment systems just right there on the CAN bus, letting it all hang out with everything else that makes your car go or not go or go in a different direction. But isn't the saving grace with the Tesla that they actually do get software updates? Unlike my 2016 Honda, that is never, ever getting an update. It's running like Android 4 dot something. And it's just, that is never going to see a software update in its life. Whereas presumably with your Tesla, you do get some occasionally at least. Oh, not just occasionally. They, they come down all the time. All right. I would say the frequency is... Um, Slightly alarming? <laughs> <laughs> no. I, well, yes and no. The, the frequency was not alarming at all before Elon bought Twitter, when I had less awareness of just quite how much craziness was floating around. It tends to concern me more now because my faith in the quality of software updates coming from that company has plummeted. I have seen some of the updates introduce new bugs. None of them have been showstoppers. I mean, there's never been a case for me where it's like, oh, I can't drive my car today because this happened. Or even like, I'm seriously inconvenienced. You know, it's more like, oh, since this update, like I've had to unlock my car using the key instead of my phone a couple times. Like you know, that that level of annoyance. Or like, I don't like what they did with rearranging the UI elements on the screen and there's nothing that I can do about it. I just have to suck it. It's more that kind of issue. But yeah, the, the, the Teslas absolutely get updates all the time. It's not a very different update frequency than what you would expect from like a Windows machine or, or a Linux system. More like Windows than Linux because most of the Linux distributions are like, oh, we got a patch, you get a patch right now. We're not waiting to, you know, batch them all up for a special day. Whereas, of course, you know, Microsoft likes to do their Patch Tuesday once a month. The Teslas are somewhere in between, but you definitely do get updates. You get them pretty frequently. They come in over the air. One of the other interesting things to see out of the Pwn to Own contest, which really got its start around finding bugs in browsers, is that no one signed up to test browsers this year. Everybody was much more interested in hacking on cars and VMware and Oracle VirtualBox and a bunch of other stuff. You know, to be fair for the cars thing, it is called Pwn to Own. And uh, those researchers got themselves a Tesla Model 3. Nice. Which is a pretty serious incentive to look at hacking cars and not browsers. I mean, which would you rather have, a new laptop or a new sedan? Well, the own part was mostly meaning the, the least speak version of it. And they gave out $850,000 in cash prizes as well. Oh, as well. Yes. But no, the, the, the own is not just a lead speak thing. The, the original premise of Pwn to Own was if you hack it, we give it to you. If you hacked a MacBook, you got a brand new MacBook and on down the line. Just like these researchers, again, I'm not kidding. Part of their reward is they got a brand new Tesla 3. <laughs> With all these exploits that they know about and now don't want to drive the car. <laughs> is it possible that browsers are just really hardened these days because so many people have been trying for so long to exploit them? To some degree, I imagine it is. There's less low-hanging fruit there than in a lot of the other places. Yeah, that could be part of it. 
But I, I just, I wouldn't want people to stop working on browsers either. Mm. No, definitely not. I, I think there are some definite incentives uh, above and beyond the whole, like, you know, get a car versus get a laptop for focusing on things like cars instead of things like browsers, if that's an option in a contest like Pwn to Own. For one thing, yes, browser security has increased tremendously over the last decade. Browsers are, they've had much more time to get hardened and secure with, you know, that kind of focus because they have always, very literally, the whole point is they're, they're touching the internet all the time. Whereas cars, until recently, people are like, oh, well, you know, it's just, it's, it, it's just a car, right? Like, I'm not worried about information security on my car. So you've got this green field, like, oh, I get to tackle an industry where everybody thought their crap was private and nobody could touch it. Sweet. The other thing is, whether you can still find holes in the browsers or not, modern browsers are stupendously complex. There is a lot to understand if you really want to figure out like, okay, what are the potential vulnerabilities in these systems? How can I attack them? You know, how do I get around this thing that's specifically designed to keep me from attacking it? Yada, yada, yada. By contrast, the car's systems are much simpler, which sounds weird when you're talking about something like a Tesla that to some degree can even drive itself if you're dumb enough to let it. But I stand by it. I think the software in a Tesla is far simpler than the the software in Mozilla Firefox or Google Chrome. And it's worth remembering that the vast majority of the code in a browser is exactly that. It's code. Whereas a lot of the most complex portions of the software in a Tesla, I think we have to draw a line between code and models. Code is something that humans have to actually program, whereas a model is a black box. It's been trained on data and it does a thing and you either like it or you don't. And most of the really daunting stuff in a Tesla, it, it's trained models, you know? Nobody wrote a program to self-drive your Tesla. That's a model. Well, and even the exploit, like the, the Bluetooth one was mostly actually, I think, a firmware exploit. And it's code, but kind of different than what you think of, you know, browser code. The other interesting thing I saw here is that almost everybody who won a bunch of money was associated with a company. People weren't entering the contest as individuals anymore. You see, you know, Star Labs did this and Synactic did that and various other companies. And we've seen much more of an industry grow up around this rather than before where it was a bunch of individual hackers. Part of that also comes, you know, when these contests come up, most of these guys are showing up with stuff they've found and not disclosed yet and using it to chain together with a bunch of other stuff and new stuff they find as part of the contest to kind of give them the leg up and win the big cash prizes. I think we're seeing a lot more security researchers mobbing up, if you'll permit a, a silly phrase, in general. Ten years or so ago, there were a lot more security researchers who were operating as just lone wolves out there doing their own thing. And it seems like more and more as InfoSec has gotten more acceptance and a wider understanding as a field that you should be employing security researchers, it seems like more of them have been consolidating and, you know, getting hired into labs. And um, once that happens, there, there's also just sort of an, an issue of like, well, do I as an individual want to spend months of my time trying to get ready for a contest like Pwn to Own, knowing that I'm going to be competing with fully funded labs with multiple researchers. And then on top of that, I think that there has been some incentive for security researchers specifically to mob up 
to get in a lab or a group or whatever when they're chasing bounties, because we've also seen how frequently large companies will just decide, nah, we're not going to bother paying that guy for, you know, that thing that they found. Whereas it's a little bit more difficult to do that to, you know, a, a fairly large security group that may very well decide, nah, we're going to sue you about that, fam. We got the resources to do it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L ide.com slash 25a. Let's do some free consulting then, but first just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Tony has done. He writes, question for Jim and Alan, what server manufacturer do you recommend? Have you used AMD Epic in production? Also, what are your thoughts on super micro servers? To be honest, I'm taking the mickey a bit here, but the answer is none of them. They all suck. Every server vendor is freaking terrible. With that said, I mean, that, that basically boils down to you can use pretty much anything you want. I would personally recommend avoiding the Lenovo stuff. They're really bad about doing uh, firmware-level lock-ins. I personally stopped being willing to use Lenovo for absolutely anything after I had an issue with a Lenovo laptop, actually, that had a, a bad Wi-Fi controller in it. And the warranty department absolutely refused to do anything about it and insisted that it must be a problem with my router despite the fact that the laptop was part of a fleet of identical laptops, and this was the only laptop that had a problem on the Wi-Fi in the facility all the laptops were in. So I got frustrated with their warranty department and finally was just like, well, screw it. I'm just going to go out and get an an Intel half-height mini PCIe and put it in the laptop myself, which I did. And it then refused to boot. And I don't mean refused to boot as in like there was a bug and it didn't work or whatever. No, I mean the Lenovo's BIOS flat out told me third-party hardware detected, remove third-party hardware to boot. What? Yep. Yep. I had the same thing. I had a bunch of these Lenovo X220s and they had Wi-Fi that worked in FreeBSD, but there was the new chip that had just come out. And so I bought the chip for like 10 bucks or whatever. And if, I'll put it in this laptop and I can help beta test this new Intel driver. And then the laptop's just like, nope, refuse to boot. Even though you replaced an Intel one with a slightly newer Intel of like the same Centrino brand, everything. It's like, nope, that's not on my whitelist. So I refuse to boot. And I have not personally seen this, but I have no reason to disbelieve it. 
one of my local vendors has they they move a lot of uh, pre-built Lenovo boxes, uh, server boxes, and they have told me time and time again, like, yeah, I can get you Lenovo servers at a good price, but you have to be careful because you have to buy hard drives for them from Lenovo as well. What? According to my vendor, if you put in a hard drive that you bought just from wherever into one of these Lenovo servers, it will do the same thing that my Lenovo laptop did about the Wi-Fi controller and absolutely refuse to use it. Even if it's the same brand of hard drive that you could source from a Lenovo seller, if it didn't come from Lenovo, it's not on the blessed list and it's not going to work. Well, you have to remember, Lenovo basically bought and took over IBM's server business. And yeah, that was kind of their thing. Uh, Regardless, it's... Uh, we're going through all the reasons why Lenovo is the one vendor that personally, I'll say if you're looking for a server, stay as far away from them as humanly possible. They've all got their downsides. The big downside for Dell is uh, they want to put a perk controller and everything, which is like the world's absolute most garbage hardware RAID controller, which will actively get in your way if you want to set it up for ZFS. It is possible to order a PowerEdge that does not have a PERT controller in it, but like you need to really know what you're doing and make sure you get the right thing. And even their newer uh, BOSS controller thing they use for the onboard NVMe, like the M2 type ones, can be a right pain because it really, really wants to raid together your NVMEs. Mm-hmm. You can convince it not to, but you have to convince it not to. Other big complaints about Dell are just the amount of time they take to boot. I don't know what Dell does to their BIOS, but it takes five minutes longer to boot than every other brand of machine I've ever used. I can't agree with that one. That's one of my complaints with every single server-grade motherboard vendor is just insanely long post times. Super micros are incredibly long. I, I found the super micros are usually minutes shorter than a Dell. And they don't have like a progress bar where they take forever. Like a super micro takes longer the very from a cold boot because it waits for the IPMI to come up before it even tries to start booting. But after that, it's it's not any it's not even the same ballpark as a Dell. I still do not agree with that statement. Moving on from Dell, then you've got HPE, and the big complaint about HPE is basically just that it costs three times too freaking much. I don't know what's in the water at HPE, but uh, they charge enormous prices. And what's worse is that they distribute their profit margin really weirdly amongst the parts. So it's one of those deals where you may find yourself, if you're at all price sensitive, like trying to buy a server with the least amount of RAM you can get away with in it and the least amount of drives you can get away with in it so that you can then put other things in, even when it means actually having to literally just throw away the RAM and the drives that came with the server that you could not buy the server without because like you need to get rid of it in order to empty up the spaces to put in the gear that you really wanted that you also, you know, managed to get for like a third the cost. It's just, it's really weird. I I do not like that experience. That has kept me from actually pulling the trigger on any HPE server buys so far. Moving on, you asked specifically about Supermicro and uh, saving the least worst for last. That is by far my preferred server vendor so far. Again, they all suck. Supermicro is very much included. There are so many things about server design that I hate. I do not like those stupid AST Lightspeed graphics chipsets that are on every single board. I do not like the insanely long post times that are on every single server board, etc. on down the line. With that said, Supermicro 
I think the the nicest thing that I can say about them, and I'm I'm not being like Southern with a bless your heart here. I mean it. This is a nice thing. They're very generic. They don't do anywhere near as much to try to put their own stink on every possible piece of hardware and make sure that every possible thing you do, you have to do the super micro way. There's a little bit of that. Like if you use a super micro motherboard in a non-super micro case, you'll probably have to get like a little adapter for, uh, you know, the LED header on the board because it won't match up with what a normal computer case expects. Little minor things like that. But for the most part, super micro comes the closest to my platonic ideal which is get out of my way and just, you know, give me the box to put the goodies in. (laughs) When they build in a disc controller, they'll tell you in the manual what it actually is. It's the LSI Mm -hmm. SAS 3008 or whatever, 3308. And it means you can tell if it's going to work a lot easier. And they have decent manuals. And they don't charge extra for the the IPMI and rote management stuff. I think the worst one I had was like a an HP slash NEC machine, and you could only use the IPMI until the OS started unless you paid for it. So you could rescue the machine and get the OS to boot, but as soon as you've been in the OS for 60 seconds, it would kick you out unless you paid an extra couple hundred dollars for a license. It's also nice because Supermicro doesn't make you buy stupid crap. You know, like like I said, if you you buy an HPE machine, you, you, at the very least, you can't easily buy one truly bare. Like if you're you're going to HP's own site where they directly sell HPE servers, you can't configure them without some RAM and some storage, which sucks if you don't want the HPE branded stuff. You just want to put your own stuff in there. Supermicro will sell you, not only will will they sell you a truly bare server with no RAM or no drives, they'll sell you just a motherboard. They'll sell you just the chassis. They'll sell you just whatever you want and just about anything you can think of that you want it. You didn't answer the question, have either of you used AMD Epic in production? Short answer, yes. Slightly less short answer, yes, and it's awesome. Uh, Seriously, I've got nothing at all bad to say about Epic servers. They are by far my preference. They are considerably more powerful in terms of bang for the buck than uh, any, any of the modern Xeon stuff. I love them. I I love the support for secure encrypted virtualization. The only downside to Epic systems is particularly since the pandemic, they can be very hard to actually find because there are many fewer models that are Epic powered rather than Xeon powered. And the time to deliver tends to be considerably longer as well. Yeah, I don't have any firsthand experience. I don't actually have any of my own, but have used a bunch for customers and they seem really nice. And then the specs I saw on the the next generation of them that are coming, where they have over a gigabyte of L3 cache, is I, I'm drooling already. Yeah. Uh, for reference, out of the servers that I own and or manage, I'm probably about 50-50 Intel and AMD because I went like hard for Epic once Epic launched. And before Epic got so difficult to actually get delivered to your door, that didn't really happen until you know, the, the pandemic lockdown. Before that, they were perfectly easy to get hold of. And uh, I would be 100% epic if I could get away with it. The supply chain has kept me from being able to be 100% epic on the server side. Yeah, the only reason I don't have more AMD is it's just, it's not been my hardware refresh cycle yet. And so I just have stuff from before. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me at jarrest.com slash mastodon. You can find me on Twitter at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.